Welcome back to the second half of a doubleheader with a fellow baseball fan, somebody maybe a few of you have heard of. Uh, we've got U.S. Congressman Kelly Armstrong in the studio, and I'm extremely excited to have you back. When I heard you were coming in for uh, Ray Holmberg's event, I thought, well, what the heck, we'll reach out to him and see if there's a possibility to come and do the show. And lo and behold, Common Sense Uncensored with Mark Rested, Episode 6, featuring none other than U.S. Congressman Kelly Armstrong. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Well, there's really nothing to talk about as far as political. I mean, there's nothing going on. There's been no changes. I mean, we, when I get you in this chair, I, I feel like I have to ask you the questions that everyone wants to know. Everyone. So the first one, and you can avoid it if you want. I won't feel bad. But did Jerry Nadler, in fact shit his pants up in front of Congress in front of the whole world on national television. You know, I don't know for sure or not, and I don't. And uh, I served with Chairman Nadler for two years, but I can tell you objectively, he's really, really bad at running a committee. I think one thing people would be shocked to know about Congress is how much power like committee staff has and, and how much power is galvanized, particularly with certain members who, um, you know, either may have been there longer than they should be or whatever, and how much the staff that surrounds them really controls what goes on. I have what I think is the best staff in D.C., but one of the reasons I have the best staff in D.C. is because I spend a lot of time with them, and they know that uh, we're going to do what Kelly thinks we should be doing. And they, they have constant access to me, but also at the same time, they're not allowed to freelance very often. Well, that's that's good. And I think what you just did was make the best argument against term limits. Because a lot of times, doesn't the staff kind of stay behind and get picked up by the incumbents and suddenly they're the ones with the... So term limits is a great question. And I would bet, I don't know this for sure, but I bet most people listening to this are in favor of term limits. And I'm not. And I've always said that. I've been honest with it. And I think for two reasons. One, everybody thinks the worst part about DC is the partisanship, right? That's like whatever. If you're if you're conservative, all of those things. But really the worst part about DC is it's the coolest party these people have ever been to. And Nobody wants to leave. And by the way, that doesn't, you don't have to be there for 30 years for that to exist. That happens for a lot of people as soon as they get there. But the reason I don't like term limits is exactly, well, there's a bunch of reasons. One is because you put more power in lobbyists, more power in administrative agencies. Two, I get to run for reelection every two years, every single two years. And then three is because if you do, if you do have term limits, you will empower staff even more than they do now. And more importantly, for the vast majority of the people who are frustrated with those people who have been there a long time, I'll use Speaker Pelosi as an example. Speaker Pelosi is never going to lose to a Republican in her district. It's not. It's under the current makeup of that district, and it'll be the same makeup after this census. The only thing, I mean, Speaker Pelosi's biggest threat is from her left, not from her right. Oh, she could run deceased and beat a Republican. And another reason for against term limits is if you look, particularly in the Democratic conference, all their leadership is galvanized in New York and California. And if you have term limits in place, small state representation is never going to get to the leadership table because we have these fights about partisanship and all of that now. But when term limits come into play, you have different options like Texas and California and all of these large states are going to be able to coalesce votes and ensure that they control leadership in the House moving forward. I think there's a lot of people that I wish 
didn't get beat on both sides of the aisle. I think they had a lot to offer to Congress. But I also think there's a lot of people who have stayed there too long. But I don't think term limits is the answer. I think Republic, Republicans and Democrats and voters demanding more and better out of their out of their elected officials is a better answer. Is one of those people you're referring to potentially Colin Peterson? Well, so Colin Peterson is... So, yeah, I, I will tell anybody this because I, I got to know Colin very well. And I wish we had a lot more Democrats like Colin Peterson in Washington, D.C. They just can't come from our plus seven. 17 districts. I wish we had more Democrats like Colin Peterson in, in Massachusetts and even in more liberal areas in Minnesota, like in the in the in the metro area. Colin Peterson, if 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 more Democrats in D.C. acted like Colin Peterson, and I don't mean in a partisan way, I mean that they've had dirt under their fingernails at one point in time in their life. But as somebody who comes from an at-large state and thinks Speaker Pelosi's agenda is absolutely terrible for the state of North Dakota, I need more Republicans in Congress anywhere I can get them because once your first vote is for Speaker Pelosi for Speaker, your second vote is not nearly as consequential to me. That's just the way it works. <laughs> I could, couldn't agree with you more, especially when it comes to things like energy. And I believe you know, North Dakota being one of the states front and center in that, you know, if you look at what we've got, just as a country, but you could even say as a world, as far as energy goes. I know you come from an oil background, so you're well-versed. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But we've got reserves in this in this earth, you know, that could survive us maybe, what, 100-plus years? I mean, there's trillions of barrels out there between OPEC and Austin, Russia. And uh, I think a very smart friend of mine told me the other day that our reserves in lithium is like minutes old. <laughs> you know, like the, the minute we stop letting China harbor or, or, you know, purchasing it from China, it's gone. We're done. We have no lithium mines in the U.S. We produce none of it. We used to have one. It's non-producing now. Uh, you call your pod, the podcast is called Common Sense. This is something I've been trying to do on the Energy and Commerce Committee since I got here. Here's some common sense for anybody in North Dakota. If you are going to convert our entire fleet to electric, right now, the mid-sized electric truck, the the mid-sized industrial electric truck weighs 800 pounds more than its diesel component. So it, the minute you see that, you know that you can haul. This isn't just an oil and gas issue. Let's talk about hauling potatoes from Grand Forks to Minneapolis. Well, you can haul 800 pounds less potatoes because your truck weighs 800 pounds more. Not to mention, if you ha- even with quick st- charging stations that don't exist yet, but even if they do exist, between hours of service and time to charge that vehicle, now instead of getting it done in one day, it'll take two days. So you can haul less product, and it's going to take you twice as long to get there. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going to happen. The cost of everything's going to go up, and it's not going to go to the producer, but the, the, the consumer's going to pay more, the producer's going to get less, and everybody in the middle is going to get more money, which is bad for our ag industry, bad for our economy, and it's bad for, bad for people trying to feed their family at home. You know, they've captured the uh, emotions of people thinking that the climate is changing and whatnot, and that, you know, if we just, you know, move away from uh, carbon dioxide producing, you know, engines that, that we're going to solve that issue. But to me, I don't believe that that's what it's about from the people that are actually pulling the strings. I think it's more a matter of tearing down America to lift up, you know, the United Nations type of countries. Because at, at the end of the day, you saw what Biden did with Russia with the pipeline. He, you know, gave it the old double thumbs up. And meanwhile, he's axing pipelines right here in the country. Nobody can explain it. He can't. Well, he can't explain anything. Two plus two is yellow. But I mean, the, you know, just from your standpoint, do you think that there's an agenda that's basically being driven on misinformation? 100%. First of all, it's important people recognize the Green New Deal is not about saving the planet. It's about winning elections. And in order to do that, what they do is they 
my wife's from Oslo, Norway. So one of her biggest criticisms of America is our egocentrism. And she's right, right? I mean, but my response to that is when you go to a vacation and you want to go to somewhere to go to a beach, you go to Italy or you go to Greece or you do that. So you guys, your countries are all smaller. They're closer together. When we want to go to beach, we go to Galveston, Texas or, you know, down to Florida. I mean, so one of the reasons we're so much bigger, we're in a lot of ways, we're more like the European Union than we are any particular country in Europe. But the reason I bring that up is because the Green New Deal is not about saving the planet. It's about winning elections. How do they do that? They capitalize on Americans' ability as a society to outsource our guilt. We don't care if there's a lithium mine in China polluting the air and polluting the water because we can't see it. We don't care if we are exporting all of our plastics so they're going down um, rivers and into the ocean in the Pacific Ocean through Africa or wherever because we can go to a cocktail party in Manhattan after we got our $10,000 subsidy on our Tesla and talk about how we're saving the planet. It takes... Seven pounds of lithium to build one Tesla car battery. Uh, by some accounts, you move 250 tons of dirt to create the electric components of that electronic car. There's nothing necessarily cleaner about it. It's just we're outsourcing the pollution somewhere else. Not the least of which is if you want cobalt, re recognize that the vast majority of our cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and a majority of that is mined by seven-year-old slaves. So if we're going to have these conversations, we should have them. Listen. The public is, there's going to be, we don't pass one single piece of policy. There's going to be more electric cars on the road in five years than there are now. But we could shut down every coal plant in, the, in North Dakota, and the world's going to burn more coal in five years than it is now, too. So let's be realistic about this conversation. Let's get clean air. Let's get clean water. Let's reduce our carbon footprint. But let's do it in a way that doesn't put North Dakota companies and U.S. companies at a disadvantage in a global stage. It's that simple. Or we could solve it all with carbon credits where you just buy your right to pollute. Is that something that you'd be interested well, in? <laughs> that's one of my, by the way, some, so when people who are listening know I was in the oil business, I, I'm like what I like to refer to as small oil. Uh, we, we had this conversation in a hearing last week. Democrats submitted four letters from oil, oil companies who supported the Biden administration's methane rules. And it was from Equinor, Shell, BP, and Exxon. And I, I mean, I'm a big fan of the oil business outside of democracy. I don't think I can think of anything that has lifted more people out of poverty than cheap, reliable energy. And that's just the truth. But Equinor is a Norwegian company. They used to be called Stat Oil until that name was too politically insensitive. Shell is a Dutch company. They have environmental rulings in their home country's court system that they have to deal with. Exxon and BP are both U.S. companies. But you know what all four of those companies have in common? Over 85% of their production is not in the United States. Isn't that something? So they're recommending a, a, a stricter methane rule for U.S. producers when 85% of their production is outside of the U.S. Whatever they have to comply with in regulation, they make up their market share because an oil company in western North Dakota, if this rule is planted, is double regulated from the, from the wellhead all the way to market. And it's an, it's an incredibly capital-intensive business that is subject to a commodity being traded. I mean, WTI has been all over the place in the last 18 months. There's no secret why these guys are doing it and there's no secret why we should continue to fight it well i'm glad to hear you're fighting that speaking of fighting there's one other thing i wanted to ask you about that's really got my ire up and that would be um what i keep hearing from the mainstream media and even you know a few other sources like social media whatnot about what the atf has got up their sleeve right now 
regarding firearms. I know they started with their focus on the 80% lowers and things like that. Uh, it sounds like now they, they're coming after braces again. Uh, Trump administration came after not necessarily braces in total, but they went after the honey badger, which was a particular pistol. These are always fights we're going to continue to fight. Uh, I show you this because everybody doesn't know. I give away I give away three stickers in my office. One says cold guns freedom. The other one says oil 100% organic. And the third one says take a kid hunting. Don't hunt for your kid. And so when you talk about the Second Amendment and you talk about how important it is, listen, everybody, people are already starting. I can feel people's hair on the back of their necks. The Second Amendment isn't about hunting. You're right. It's not. It is absolutely not about hunting. The thing is, sportsmen are our front line of defense in order of protecting the Second oh, Amendment. Oh, without hunting, there wouldn't be nearly enough gun owners to even keep this fight a fight. Yes. We'd, have gave, we'd have lost it years ago. So it's important that we recognize, and it's important for us because this is how we recreate. This is how we do things. And more importantly, uh, as somebody who is a criminal defense attorney for 10 years and actually understands crime and understands the stats we talk about crime, $3,700 rifles are not committing even within the ballpark of the number of crimes that it makes sense to regulate them. You know what commits crimes? Cheap pistols, cheap handguns, things you can get on the secondary market, a Kel-Tec 9 or an 870 sawed-off. Well, these are the things. I mean, you can buy a 9mm Kel-Tec for, I think, a brand-new one for under 350 bucks, depending on where you're at. I mean, the problem with the—one of the biggest problems with— the gun policy in this country is the vast majority of people who think they know what the policy is only see it from watching TV movies. And with the exception of Heat in 1995, the vast majority of <laughs> movies who are dealing with firearms of that nature have no idea what they're dealing with, right? I, I, they just don't. I was listening to a podcast about Terminator 2, Judgment Day, the other day, and they were talking about the Henry Henry rifle that Arnold Schwarzenegger was using. Well, it was a Henry, but it was a four t- or it was a 12-gain shotgun. And I feel like... like <laughs> it's kind of critical. By the way, it's pretty obvious throughout the whole movie that, I mean, it, it was the most breaking special effects in the history of action movies, and you could tell that by how they were dealing with shotgun wounds into the guy who could melt them back into place. Still holds up, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the last movies that you didn't use green screens all the time. So Yeah, well, the green screens are kind of fun. Yeah, I, I don't know what everybody else is seeing, but I could see a green screen. <laughs> yeah, you can know, They're seeing common sense uncensored. Yeah, so. I should have wore a green shirt and I could just be a dancing head. So. But yeah, the ATF, we're always going to watch that. I, I mean, we're always going to continue to do those things. Some of, I mean, some of it they can do by rulemaking to, um, and deal with some of those issues, and we've fought that forever. We actually beat back the one last administration, but I think you're going to see more of them. I mean, it was like bump stocks or suppressors or all of these things that are really, really fun to go after if you're a liberal and the only thing you know about firearms is what you watch in t- on TV or in movies. But for any of us who deal with them every day, recognize that these, these are not the problems and you what who you're hurting are normal law-abiding gun owners who would never think of committing a crime well the bump stock ban was hilarious because almost nobody has them and the people that do realize it's just a quick, have you ever used one oh, yeah they're many, ridiculous many times. I, i've done it once and i'm like well that was a lot of money seven dollars <laughs> in like 13 seconds no i mean it, it's fun but it's like i always say it's like the the equivalent of fireworks for firearms because you're just playing around and having some and fun. And listen, they're using it on the Vegas tragedy, and it was a tragedy, but it is also like if you would try and game out where a bump stock would ever be used in any scenario that would cause mass 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 casualties to people, that's like literally the only way it could happen. And it, it, again, it was terrible and it was tragic, and we should never, 
ever discount that just weight and waste and loss of human life. But the bump stock wasn't the issue, and it sure wasn't the issue moving forward. No, one could argue it was a mentally ill guy that brought 40 guns into a hotel room and somehow did it under the light of day and didn't get caught doing it. And I personally don't even believe bump stocks are used, but that's neither here yeah. nor there. His say, is, speaking of hunting, is there any good hunting or golf in D.C.? What's to, fun to do out there? Uh, so there's a Sporting Clays place that I think is opened back up now. Uh, I don't golf. I uh, I used to golf. I, when I went to school in Grand Forks, I golfed a lot. I was actually pretty good at it. It's shocking how good you can get at something when you don't go to class. Uh, but as I started practicing law, when I moved to Dickinson, I was starting a young family, and pre-trials were on Tuesday, and men's day was Tuesday. So I didn't, I kind of quit golfing cause I had to be in court. And then when I had two little kids at home, it was pretty hard when you were working as hard as I was to come home. And it, by the way, this wasn't like my wife saying, don't golf. She would never do that. She's fantastic. She's better than me in every possible way. It's like, <laughs> I actually wanted to see my kids instead of spending six hours at a course. Uh, the fun things to do in DC really are, and anybody listening, you should come out, you should come see the city and you should remember why people you, you don't you're not going to like all the people there i don't like all the people there but it really is the shining beacon on the hill it's the center of democracy in the free world all the smithsonians are free there is so much access to so many different cool parts of our history and it really is a fantastic place and it's a little like vegas right it doesn't have the best steakhouse in the country but it might have three of the top 10 like Vegas doesn't have the best sushi place in the country, but it's got three of the top 10. So there's great things to eat. There's great things to do. You can do things. I mean, you can eat the, you can go to a five-star restaurant. That's going to be a month's salary, but more often than not, they have the best food truck game in the country, I think. Uh, so you want to go get a chili dog while you're hanging out at the Smithsonian. There's great places to go to do that. We actually give people recommendations in our office. Like what's your price point? What do you want to do? You got kids with you, all of that, where are you going to be? And there's just, it's a really good city to walk around in. You know, I've never been on, I've always, it's kind of always been on my bucket list, but you know, the, the nastier and smarmier and grosser politics gets, it sort of gives it that feel. But after listening to you just now, maybe it's still worth giving it a rip. Well, I remember like, so now the, st- now the, now the, the fences are coming down and all of this. And you know what I'm mostly, I got to meet with my first high school class that was out there for a trip. That's when I went the first time for close up when I was a senior in high school and it was great, but I got to meet my first one last week and I was just super excited about it, but I missed the protest. I I love the fact that people can stand. If I walk outside to vote and it's a controversial issue, it's safe, it's secure, but there are people protesting and can tell you exactly what they think and feel for the entire time you walk there. Do you know how uniquely American that is? We don't insulate ourselves. That's what I hate so much about the fences. I'm a, I want to make sure people are safe. I want the staff to be safe. I want the cops to be able to do their job without thinking they're in danger. But also at the same time, we have to protect the ability for people to express their grievances with the government. I started, I started rating protests not on what the issue was because, listen, if there's 50 protests, I probably have the same same side of them 25 times and I'm against them 25 times. But it was more about the effort and organization they put into it. You know, if somebody's out there and protesting for stricter gun control, which I, I, I mean, I will stand up at the top of the Capitol steps and have that debate with any of them. But if they've put a lot of effort into bringing things out and setting up a coordinated protest, you got to give them props for that. If it's somebody who's just cut out a cardboard sign and scribbled it on there five minutes before they got there, then I'm like, you know, it's like you have the right to redress your government 
put a little effort into this. Yeah, the, the stuff after the election where they stormed the Capitol, that was a little rough. Uh, but boy, some of those guys did deserve a little uh, props for their outfits. I think I just saw a picture of one guy dressed up like a buffalo. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a little difficult for me because I was on I was in the floor I was on the floor when that all went down, and it it was I mean there were. We've already learned some intelligence failures and a lot of different things about that. But, you know, if you think about it, that's the first time since 1812 that the Capitol has been, I mean, broken into. And it, it, it was a very – and my biggest concern is it's if it fundamentally alters how we do business. And I'll give you an example. I had been to the White House before 9-11. And I've been to the White House since 9-11, and it is not the same experience. When I practiced criminal law in southwest North Dakota, we had an incident, and it was very, very close to being a real dangerous incident in Adams County. And so then all of the security measures that went into place to all the courthouses, rightfully so probably, but utilizing the courthouse now and utilizing it before that happened are different. I served in the legislature before and after we had metal detectors, and what we never want to happen is to actually decrease the ability for regular, normal, everyday people to have access to these facilities. And I'm just concerned that when things like that happen, we're always going to be in that case. Yeah, I'm reminded of... uh I don't believe we had metal detectors in court here in Grand Forks until well, Judge Jenke. Judge Jenke, who I had, uh, was one of the favorite people I ever served in front of. And uh, he's, I've, I probably have three. Uh, if you take my dad out of the equation, three of my best, I don't know a better way to say this, ass chewings I've ever gotten in my huh. life were from Judge Jenke. <laughs> <laughs> and I deserved all three of them. Yeah, well, luckily he survived, and I think, I don't know, what what was the guy's name? Was it Ruben yeah, Nelson? Yeah, I can't even remember. Ruben Larson, yeah. I, I Actually, my dad at the time was a used car salesman at Wright L's and, and uh, unknowingly sold the guy's getaway car right prior to doing it because he came in for a car, and he promptly went and shot the judge. But So, yeah, that's how we wound up with the metal detectors here. So I, I would say it's probably unlikely there won't be some changes to the way the people's house is protected, at least from a intelligence and staffing standpoint well and i mean from that standpoint i mean we've learned a lot about what we need to do better for our capital police officers i mean that this this is a tough job i mean you, you know and but i've also said that like their response from leadership is to harden harden the defenses which would be anybody's response right but my response to that is how do we do that in a way that doesn't decrease access for people because that we cannot give that away. We can't give it away. We can't let this happen. We can't let this event be an excuse to more, more, clo- more close off politicians more from the people they represent. That's a terrible idea. And if we go down that road, I'll be fighting that every step of the way as well. Would you say that event, based on the way it's been portrayed in the media, is it being portrayed the way it was? Or do you think it's under-exaggerated, over-exaggerated? Or do you think we have a reasonable idea of what went down? Because a lot, most people weren't there, obviously. Well, I think I think this is a perfect example of how bifurcated our, our, our media is. I think on one side it's being up underrepresented. I just believe that. And on the other side I think it's being overly over overly represented. And it's everybody utilizes hyperbole to a degree that doesn't matter. Here's what I'll tell you about what happened on January sixth. It was dangerous. It should be everybody should want that to never happen again, and a whole bunch of people got into a facility they should have never got into. The, the law enforcement was not prepared, and the law enforcement officers on the ground legitimately, by just being really good and brave at their job, saved people's lives. Good. Well, that's that's a perspective that none of us are going to have because none of us are in your shoes. So that's uh, you heard it here first. I mean, 
um, hopefully the, we'll just get things straightened out out there. And like you said, maybe it won't totally, you know, destroy the way we do things. And I'm actually, this isn't even a partisan fight. There are, there are a lot of members on both sides of the aisle that are very, very concerned and cognizant of the openness and the access that we have in the U S Capitol. And so I'm cautiously optimistic that we will increase some security measures, but not I mean, something will be different. It always is after an event like that, but I'm very cautious. And mostly last week I was back and it was pretty open. You know, we're meeting with students on the steps again. That's what we did before and all of that. And, you know, COVID was part of that too, so. Um, we'll, we'll kind of dovetail a little bit. What are your thoughts on the cry from many Republicans to demand a cognitive test for the president? I know that I'm nervous about it because if he fails it, I look at who he might be stuck with. And so I'm just curious where you fall on that. If you don't want to answer, that's fine. Oh, I'll answer. I think all of that's silly. I thought it was silly when they did it to Trump. I think it's silly when they do it to President Biden. I think it's part of where we, I think far too often we cater. It's what I would tell a lot of my friends, particularly my colleagues, uh, it's, there's ways to energize your base without going to the lowest common denominator. Uh, if you, I mean, first of all, this is just the bottom line, and this is how I view things like this. Seven Republicans sending a letter to the president demanding a cognitive test gets filed, and you know exactly how it gets filed. File 13? <laughs> yeah, it gets filed. Exactly. By the way, it's the same thing when the Democrats demanded it of President Trump. So all you're doing is ginning up something, particularly mostly so you can raise money on social media and then try and continue to keep people going on. Um, listen, do I think that the president doesn't sound very good sometimes when he's public speaking. Absolutely. But I also remember how Democrats, I was old enough to remember how Democrats used to call um, President Bush and just an idiot because he sometimes flubbed over his words as well. And we all know that President Bush was not an idiot. And Joe Biden, well, well, fairly advanced in years is uh, capable of doing it. And I will tell you this, I know I haven't been over there yet, but I know people, particularly senators and other members who have been in the office when they've been working with him on these infrastructure bills. He's definitely way more liberal than he promised in his campaign, and he's doing things that he said he would never do, and we should hold him accountable for every one of those things. But the feedback I get back from people is he's engaged, he's talking to him, he knows what's going on, and all of those things. So I think those cognitive test things are silly. I think we have bigger fights to fight about and we should continue to do it mostly because there's no chance of them ever having it done anyway no it's just mudslinging i got a question for you i I should just one side say so after they all all the democrats did that to president trump i had the opportunity to see him like three days after the story broke at a dinner and it was the best half hour riff based on that like I wish that would have been public because they would have quit calling for President Trump's cognitive test in a hurry or in a really bit buried because he just absolutely buried it, and he was really funny when he did it. I thought a lot of the things he did was funny. He had a pretty good sense of humor on him, and I, he used it at times not opportunist for well, sometimes Republicans and sometimes Democrats, but he did have the humor. I I thought his Twitter account for the most part pretty funny. Yeah, and anybody, I mean, and, and I and it's not even you don't even have to agree with what he was saying or not saying at any. Particular particular time anybody watch that half hour off the cuff riff would be like yeah there's no problem with this guy's cognitive function (laughs) (laughs) who is the coolest politician you met out there a couple that seem to me that are pretty badass is like steve scalise jim jordan dan crenshaw probably if they're being asked the same question some of them might say you but uh 
I, the, of that list, I will tell you, I've spent a, I haven't spent as much time with Dan Crenshaw. I just got on energy and commerce with him, but obviously Steve Scalise is the assistant majority leader. Uh, great guy. I've been down to Louisiana, went to an offshore, uh, a Hess rig with him, but uh, the one I spent the most time with is Jim Jordan. And uh, Jim Jordan actually is probably my biggest surprise in Congress because we all had this view of him of before we got there, right? And I've followed his wrestling career. I mean, the first time I saw Jim Jordan is when he beat John Smith in the national <laughs> national finals. He so, did, yeah. Well, I didn't even know that about him. Yeah, he's absolutely an animal. But when I so my first two years, I was on judiciary and oversight. He was the ranker on oversight, and then after Doug Collins got into the Senate race, he became the ranker on judiciary. So I spent six weeks with him in Schiff's secret bunker, and I've spent more time with Jim Jordan than any other member of Congress. And I will just tell you, whether you love him or hate him, that nobody works harder. Nobody works harder to know the information himself. He, he relies on his staff a lot, but not for information. He is an awesome guy. He's turned into one of my best friends. And I would go to the, I would absolutely, well, use a wrestling term. I'd go to the mat for Jim Jordan anytime I could. And I, I, I think he'd say the same thing for me. So he's uh, smart and a badass. That's not too bad of a combination. Yeah, and he, he pol- I always say this. He politics just like he, he wrestles, and it's just forward, 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 forward. He does not give an inch. He will not give, a, he will not give quarter. And sometimes him – by the way, so like police reform, right? We're going through that. I obviously have a little different view than a lot of Republicans on police reform since I was a criminal defense attorney for 10 years. I don't like the ra- making everything racial, everything about this, everything about this, but I believe there are real things we could do. And I think they're conservative positions on police reform. So he was on the I mean, he was on the floor of the House and we had Bill Barr in committee and all of these different things. And I'm the guy he would pick to go to rules, even though he knew him and I weren't exactly on the same page. What he knew is I was always prepared and I would go up there and I would get the job done for our side and make sure it goes forward. So I was proud when he picked me to do that. And him and I just we have a great relationship. That is awesome. Do you think he's peaked or do you think there's a, a higher future for him? I think Jim. Well, first of all, if we take back the majority in two years, he'll be the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Really? And if that if that is, I mean, I don't know if you call that peaking or not peaking, but he had the opportunity to run for the Senate this year. He had the opportunity to run for governor in Ohio this year, and he's turned both. And by the way, he would clear the field in both Republican primaries in Ohio. He would be the candidate for governor or senator in a pretty red state at this point. And he stayed in the House because he's a creature of the House and he wants to be in the fight. That is pretty cool. Well, there's some I mean, of those guys around. I mean, um, I, th- I think back to like, I think was Trey Gowdy before you? Trey Gowdy was uh, actually Trey Gowdy's replacement is a guy named um, William Timmons. And he's one of my best friends. But I talked to Trey once in a while because he has, you know, he has a unique view as a former prosecutor. And I had called him during the Mueller investigation a couple times to kind of get questioned. I'd like lay out what I was thinking about doing and just ask him lawyer to lawyer, essentially, how would you frame this? How would you pace this? Because I'd listen to Trey Gowdy read a, like Rita Campbell's soup ingredients. I, know, can, right? I totally agree. He's just got one of those captivating lawyer voices that I could, I, I could practice law the rest of my life and I would never be that compelling. And I just have a lot of respect for him. I think part of it's that South Carolina drawl and just his like straightforward stare a hole through you while he's ripping you apart. And by the way, he was never, I mean, that's what I appreciate about him. He had a lot of respect from a lot of Republicans, but he broke from Republicans once in a while too. And I mean, that's one of the things I think we need to get back. You can disagree reasonably with each other. And it doesn't matter if it's Jim Jordan or Kevin McCarthy or President Trump. It's okay to disagree. The, the way in which you do it becomes important. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of that's what's missing now. I mean, and maybe it's not missing as much as the average person even thinks, but you know, it sure seems like it if you listen to the media, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe too much of, of what's going on is just people getting, you know, their side from their media source and you know, it's possible that really how things go in, in Washington isn't the way we picture them going because it's not the story we're being given. Well, that and I, well, I mean, there's a reason we don't. Have, I mean, Congress has a lower approval rate in general of COVID. Nobody trusts the news <laughs> they're getting anymore. I mean, these are real problems. So they're real functional problems. And a lot of it is, you know, it's I always people always say this and they say it's the most partisan time it's ever been. And my response to that is, you think so? I feel like the day half the country decided to leave was probably pretty partisan. Yeah, they had some I, differing I mean, opinions. <laughs> I, I feel I feel like that was probably a pretty tumultuous time. Uh, but the difference is, is we just have so many more mediums to communicate, and people have so much more information flowing right into the palm of their hand, and di- differentiating which one of it is spin, which one of it's opinion, which one of it's actually hard news. When there's very little hard news that exists anymore, really gets to be problematic. Yeah, the Cronkites are gone. I mean, you just. Yeah, but so I always used to say this, like, uh, I, so I, I can tolerate Rachel Maddow because at least Rachel Maddow is completely honest about where she's at. My guys that always used to scare me more was like Chris Matthews, who pretends to be a hard news guy, but is every bit as far left as Rachel Maddow, but he doesn't, he doesn't acknowledge it, right? He pretends like he's a hard news guy. At least Rachel Maddow, when you listen to Rachel Maddow, if you haven't figured out that she is absolutely liberal that's not rachel's problem that's you as a viewer's problem she, so at least if they're or at least if they're putting it to you up front and you know it's a it's a base it, the perspective is based on an ideology you don't agree with you can deal with it well maddow openly sobbed the night trump was elected on the air so she left all doubt behind that day so i'll tell you why i know a lot about rachel maddow is because during the Mueller investigation i figured out pretty early on that rachel maddow knew more about what was going on in the Mueller investigation than we were being told as Republicans during the investigation. So I suffered through watching an hour of Rachel Maddow every Ooh. night throughout the entire Mueller investigation, but it was great because I'd walk into the judiciary staff and I'd be like, hey, sometime in the next two days we're going to talk about this. And they're like, how do you know? I go, because Rachel Maddow said it tonight. And he's like, well, what's that have to do with it? She's got an inside, she's got an inside source at the, at the, in the Mueller investigation and I can guarantee you this is what we're going to be dealing with. So after about two or three times of that, the staff was, the staff was like, you're right. And it's just fun to perspective and how you do all of that that is awesome i really appreciate you coming in today i know you got an important phone call so well, i don't know how important it is but it's it's scheduled which is uh one of those things where i i really try and stay on time because i think you know sometimes you get behind schedule just because you have to or because you're talking to people and it's going but one of the things i think when would one of the other things we should do better as politicians and public servants is uh show up when we're supposed to show up. So you think you could just tell McCarthy you're running late because of common yeah. sense uncensored with Mark Rusted? <laughs> I could probably tell him. I, 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 I could probably also feel the eye roll f- through the phone. So <laughs> I think so. Thanks again, Kelly. I really appreciate it. This is Congressman Kelly Armstrong on episode number six of Common Sense Uncensored with Mark Rusted. We very much appreciate him taking the time. Thank you so much. We'll see you again. Thanks.